Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. That's where we're going to just kind of start tonight. We're continuing our study of what we're calling Jesus and His world. We're seeing people, places, events, everything that ties into our Savior and His time really in our whole world, and we're going to see a lot of great things. Our goal is to understand these things and see how they connect. And what we did, and this is not new, we have seen, we, we broke our study into the end of the Old Testament, where the nation of Israel went off into captivity, and then they came back. We talked between the Testaments, where we saw all those nations, and you know, the Assyrians and the, the, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians, the Greco-Macedonians, the Romans and all that. The beginning of the New Testament is the rise of Rome and all these different things that are happening, and we're seeing life of Jesus and ministry and the forerunners and and I think these next listen I think the lessons uh, probably 11 12 uh, 11 and 12 are incredible when we think about Jesus going to the cross and what we're going to talk about there's some things in there maybe we hadn't thought about them so we'll see those and then the last section is for the end times and that'll be uh, lessons 13 and 14 where we see that so there's a lot of good stuff we're in this section the beginning of the new testament that's where we are we've seen the rise of Rome we've seen the we'd say the the the, the language and the roads and the peace and the Roman law and all of those kind of things and so last time we began seeing what we call the ministry of Jesus, the Savior of the world. So you can write that. That's where that blank is, the ministry of Jesus. And we saw the forerunner, John the Baptist. We saw the birth of Christ. We saw some really, really, really good things. And we focused really of what he did in the past and what we're going to do in this lesson. Because if you remember, we said his past ministry, creation and redemption. We're going to look at Jesus' present ministry. And the conflict as he gets ready to go to the cross. And we see that that's going to tie into next lesson because that the, the next lesson talks about the conflict and the cross. And so we'll see some great things. So there's a lot of things that we're going to see, especially in these next three, four lessons. So let's think about it. Who We, we already know the answer, but who is the most important person who ever lived? It would be our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've been seeing in these last few lessons who he is and what he's done. We saw his past ministry and what is he doing now. Well, we can, we can put it up like this. His present ministry, what is Jesus doing and where is he? Well, let's answer it. Let's, let's, let's go backwards and let's, let's answer the second one first. Where is Jesus? And we'd say, where, where is he right now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Look at Hebrew. I'm going to put these up, but you don't have to turn to those verses. But look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It talks about, and it says this, this is good. and he's the exact glory, the exact representation of the Father. And then it says, when he made purification of sins, when he paid for all sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's one three. Then in one thirteen, he says almost the same thing, but he says that he says, to which of the angels did they ever say, sit at my right hand? They're talking about Jesus sitting at the right hand. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how the priest would come Every day, it says they would come all, making offerings and sacrifices day after day, time after time, which could never take away sin. But when he offered one sacrifice for sin forever, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And then in Hebrews even 12, where we're looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. Now, we already made the, talked about this earlier, but the bottom line is, since we're in Christ, uh, the book of Ephesians tells us that we've been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with Him. That's who we are. 
And a lot of times we don't even think about that. But that's why the, Paul will say something like, uh, let, think of the things above, not the things on this earth, because we actually belong to that. The, the, quest, the second question is, okay, now what is Jesus doing now? And we're going to look tonight at two different things. We're going to look at what is he doing in heaven and what is he doing on the earth. And so we're going to see those things as we go through our passage tonight. And I think it's important. A lot of times we don't even think about what Jesus is doing. So let's start with, and I think it would be the top of your next page. Let's talk about what is Jesus doing in heaven. Think about this. I like it when the writer of Hebrews, this is a Hebrew, the Hebrews is a, is a hard book and an easy book. It's really easy when you look at the flow of what the book is about. He's talking to believers, telling them not to go back under the law because they've trusted Jesus. Don't go back under the Mosaic law because Jesus is better than anything with the Old Testament law. And the whole book is how he shows Jesus is better. There's some really hard verses in there. But one of the things I like is how the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. Wouldn't it be great if every author would say, now here's my main point. And then you could just write it down. He says, we have a great high priest who is taken. What has he done? He's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not, not man. So, you know, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and serving. So what are the things that he does? There are three things. We're just going to look at three. There's all kind of different things. But three things connected with his position in heaven. Here they are. And you can write them down. They're A, B, and C, and then we'll go to the details. The three things, first of all, he's the head of the church. We don't always think about that. But right now, this is his particular ministry. He's the head of the church. Second, he's preparing a home for us, for the believers. And the third thing is he is our representative. I'm going to give you a chance to, to write that out. So when you think about Jesus, and you look at Old Testament... I'll get y'all just write it up. I'll write this up on the board. He deals basically with Gentiles and then the Jews. And then he dies on the cross, paid for sin, rises again. And there's a whole new thing called the church, which is the body of Christ. And we're going to see the very first thing as we talk about what's he doing in his ministry in heaven. He's the head of the church, which is the body of Christ. Christ. So do all those three things written down? You can get them as we go through it because here's the first one. He's the head of the church in Ephesians chapter 1, basically 20 through 23. Let me just read this to you because it's really, really powerful. Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what he says. 20 through 23. He just basically talks about how he is... God has raised him up, and he's seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, and he's above all rule and authority. And then it says, and he put Christ, everything under his feet, and gave him as head over all things the church, which is his body. So he is the head of the church. The church belongs to him. Uh, we've been doing a study on... Um, in Sunday school or in grow group on the relationship between Christ and the church. And I was working on a lesson that we're going to have just in the next week or two. And it's dealing with that he's the head and we're the body. We've seen he's the vine, he's the branches, or that, you know, he's the high priest, a great high priest and we're priests. Well, he's going to be the head and we're the body. And he is the head of the church. And, and, and when you hear the word, there's a Greek word for head, which is kephale. And it can mean two things. It can mean a literal head, like I'm the head. 
but it also can mean the authority, the, the one in charge. And when Paul uses it, he uses it both ways. He says, we're, you know, he's the head, we're the body. And he's looking at it like, okay, he's a head, but he's also the authority. And so he's the authority over the church. What does he do as the head? There are all kinds of different things, but let me give you just a couple of things. First of all, he gives the spiritual gifts. Ephesians chapter 4 says, and he gave gifts to men. Every one of us in this room have at least one spiritual gift. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to tell me what you think your gifts are, or if I were to say, how many of you think you know what gift or gifts you have? Uh, I don't want you to have to raise your hand to that, because a lot of people would say, I'm not sure, I don't know. He's given every one of us spiritual gifts. First Corinthians, the, the Ephesians passage, the First Corinthians 18 talks about how that he's given us gifts for everyone in the body to serve, to, to, to do all those things. The second thing that he's done besides the gifts, he's given us the power to serve. You remember John 15? It's 15, I think, 4 and 5, or down in there where he says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides with me, and I in him. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think it's John 15, 5, I think. It may be, a, uh, let, me, let me look at something here, because we've got, as I told you, that when we do a study like this for the very first time, uh, there are going to be all kind of mistakes in it, and that's one reason we don't put it in booklet form until we've gone through it at least once. Let me look at John 15, what, I'm, what verse I'm... It's 15.5, I think, is the one I'm wanting. Yeah, that should say 15.5, so change your, your little book there. Uh, apart from him, we can do nothing. We're going to see a lot more later. We see the ministry of the church, the power to serve, the gifts. He's the one that does all that. So he's overseeing the church. He's the head. And Paul gives the analogy later on. He says, there's a body of Christ, and he's the head. And then some of us are eyes and noses and fingers and toes. And he talks about how everybody's got a part. And he says, you know, some people don't like their part necessarily. And let, let me just say this. If you don't like your part, it's because you're not doing it. Because if you ever start serving God based on your spiritual gifts, you will absolutely love to do whatever he has for you to do. And you won't be going around saying, I wish I could do something else. Because you're going to love exactly what you do. And that's why it's really important. If you've never taken our spiritual gifts inventory, go by the office. Uh, we'll get you a spiritual gift inventory. You can take it. It'll give you an idea of maybe what your gifts are, where, how you're gifted. It is really, really powerful. Let me tell you, when a person is serving in their area of giftedness, not only will they be very effective, they'll be able to touch lives for Christ, but they will absolutely love what they do. If a person said... Um, uh, I've been teaching uh, Sunday school, but I'm tired of doing it. I don't want to do it anymore. They probably don't have the gift of teaching. Because the person who loves to teach, who's got the gift of teaching, never wants to stop. I mean, we just have to limit this thing at night, right? We have to stop because y'all can go home. Because I would do it all night if we could. Because I love it. And when you are serving in your giftedness, you will love it. And you'll do the exact same thing. And so the bottom line is he gives us the power to serve. He gives us the gifts. The second thing that, that is so good is he is preparing the believers a home in heaven. I always love the John passage in 14 where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And my father says there are many what? Many rooms, no, no, it's, it's not mansions, you know, I don't know where they got that idea. Uh, I think for a lot of people it won't be a mansion, let me just tell you that. But yeah. the bottom line is there are many rooms, if it wasn't that way, he says, I would have told you I'd go to prepare a place for you. So what is Jesus doing right now in the heavenly places? Besides being the head of the church, he's doing what? He's preparing a place. Let me ask you a question. 
what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think this place is? And what do you think this place is? If you read the Bible toward the very end, the very back, the end of the book tells you a lot of stuff. So sometimes if you want to go over to the end, and he says that in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and it's an eternal state. And then he says there's this city coming. It's called the what? New Jerusalem. This city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. That's called the New Jerusalem. I think that's the place he's preparing because I think we're going to live there. In fact, when you read the <clears throat> Revelation 21 and 22, he talks about this city coming down, and that's where we're going to be. So I think that's the place he is preparing. It's preparing a place for us. He's seated at the right hand, preparing this, getting it ready, and I think it's the New Jerusalem. If you want to, take, it, take some time uh, and look at Revelation chapters 21 and 22 and see what he talks about this city. By the way, if you've never read it, um, it is unbelievable what the city is going to be. I mean, first of all, can you imagine anything 1,500 miles high? At 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, that's a city. That's one city. And so I imagine there's several stories. And so the bottom line is, think about this. And, and there's 12 gates. Each gate is a what? Pearl. Is a pearl. Not When people say pearly gates, it doesn't mean the gates are made out of pearl. Each gate is a pearl. The streets are made out of what? Gold. It actually says gold. It actually says you can see through it. It's translucent gold. There are, there are stones all the way around, 12 stones all the way around. And, and the 12 gates and the 12 stones and the 12 foundations, they have the name of the 12 apostles. They also have the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it is an amazing city. And I think that's where we're going to be. And some people say, well, if there's a new heaven and a new earth, will we be able to go to earth and things like that? I think so. I think you'll probably be able to go and do whatever you want to do. Okay. The third thing, he is our representative. This is what he's doing there. Now, this was one of my favorite things because we need to understand what he is as our representative. I'm going to give you two things, uh, and you can write them up by C, but, and then we're going to fill them in on those other two blanks, or you don't have to write them both at this time, but he is twofold. He is our intercessor and our advocate. And if you want to write under the one that's uh, the line above Hebrews 7, just write, he's our intercessor, and then the line above 1 John 2, write down that he is our advocate. And, and we're going to talk about what that means. Who are they? What does he do? So have you thought about that Jesus Christ right now is your intercessor and he's your advocate? And what's the difference? Okay, let's start with this as far as the first of all, he's our intercessor. He intercedes for us. You know, when you don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit, listen, you may have never saw this, but the Bible tells us that when we pray and we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit knows and the Holy Spirit tells Jesus and Jesus tells the Father. That's in that Romans passage. So sometimes take the time to look through it into detail. He intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives forever to make intercession. That means you can come and bring any request to him anytime, anyplace, anywhere about anything. Have you thought about that? How often do you pray? How often do you ask things? 
You know, when we talk about prayer, there's petitions where you can ask for something yourself. There's also intercession where you can ask for something for somebody else. So he's our intercessor. He's the go-between. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Do what? Let your requests be made known to God. So you can ask him, tell him anything, ask him anything, bring requests, bring it, because he's the intercessor. I think it's amazing when you think about this. Here's, uh, uh, did anybody got those verses? Just to put them down. Here, here's another one, Hebrews 4, uh, where, uh, listen to this. Let me, let me get this one to you. You'll love this. This is Hebrews chapter 4. And this is verses 14, 15, and 16. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Where is he? He's passed through the heavens. Where is he? It's a, where? Right hand thrown to God. Okay. He's passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things yet without sin. Do you understand? Jesus was tempted. Some people say, oh, he couldn't be tempted because he's God. He can't sin. Just because he can't sin doesn't mean he can't be tempted. And we're going to see next week the biggest temptation of all is when Satan tempts Jesus three different times. We're going to look at that. Now listen to this. He says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How many of you have needs? How many of you take them to God? We take them to Him every day. Take them to Him all the time. We can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in the time of need. So he is our intercessor, and we need to talk to him anytime, place, anywhere. Now, let me tell you, let me, we're not talking about sin here. We're not talking about dealing with sin. We're talking about bringing requests to God about anything, anything, anytime, place, anywhere. Okay, so he's our intercessor. The second thing that he does, he's our advocate. Now, what is an advocate? An advocate is a defense attorney. I want to read this to you. This is First John. 1 John is probably the hardest book in the New Testament, but it also has a lot of really amazing things. Now listen to this. This is John writing. We, we've already seen that John talks about if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. <laughs> you know, if you say, well, I didn't sin, well, you're a liar. Okay? And he says, and God is light. There's no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in darkness, we're not telling the truth. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. All those kind of things. Then he gets to... Uh, to, to 1 John 2, and here's what he says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So what can we say to each other? Let's don't sin. How many of us sin? Are we supposed to sin? No. He says don't sin. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, I'm going to give you the next verse in just a second. But what happens when we sin? What, now, what does this passage tell us? It says, when we sin, what do we have? We have an advocate with the Father. Who is the advocate? Now, what is an advocate? He's an attorney. He's a defense attorney. Now, Grace of God, I, I'd never been like in trouble where I needed an attorney and 
go to you know in there and have to have a lawyer or anything like that. But we all we know when when you have something go wrong, you need somebody to defend you. Okay, what has gone wrong in this passage? My little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. However, if you do sin, <laughs> we just went wrong, right? We have an advocate with the Father. Now let me ask you a question. Can Jesus go before the Father, bring us there, and say, they really didn't sin? What does it just say? And if anyone sins, can he say, they didn't sin? No, he can't. Do you sin? Well, then what's, what's our advocate going to do? He's our defense attorney. He's going to defend us. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say, they sinned. I already paid for it. Right? That's what he does. That's why it goes on to say in the next verse, and he is the satisfactory payment for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, all the time we always quote 1 John 2, 2, that he's the satisfactory payment. But we forget 1 John 2, 1, which actually says, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. How is he your advocate? He says, I'm the satisfactory payment for their sins. So anytime you sin, you've got an advocate. You've got a defense attorney. You've got, and by the way, he's perfect. He's never lost. Never lost a case, right? Because before the Father, the Father, the righteous judge, says this. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. Did you sin? Yes, sir. You're supposed to die. Jesus says, Your Honor, I already paid for it. I already died. Case dismissed. That's every time we sin. Now, what does he tell us to do to make sure we stay in fellowship? He said back in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our fellowship with the Father and our fellowship with the Son depends on our confession of sin. But the payment for sin is our defense attorney. That's already done. Isn't this the most amazing thing? So think about it. Whenever we sin, now this, this is not a license to say it doesn't matter what our sin because he's already taken care of it. Jesus said, don't sin. That's what did he say? What did he say? Don't sin. If you sin, there's a defense attorney. So God is faithful and just. He's already paid for it. I love this verse. Listen to this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, it's present tense, cleanses us from all sins. His blood continually covers, pays, deals with our sin all the time. Wow. We should be jumping up and down. And what we should be saying is, I don't want you to have to go before the Father all the time. Right? I, I don't want you to have to be my defense attorney. I'd rather you just be my advocate and maybe I won't have to use you as much. But the truth is, I, he, uh, I'm always standing there going, I did it again. Yeah. Jesus says, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. All right, so ministry in heaven. He's the head of the church, the authority, the gifting, and the empowering. He has gone and preparing a place for us. This is while he's in heaven. This is what he's doing. And he is our representative as an intercessor and as an advocate. Now, that's what he does right now. Have you thought about that? Sometimes we don't even think about what Jesus does for us. 
But that's what he does. Now, we're just halfway through this part because he has a ministry on earth. And here are the three things that you can write these down as well. I'll give you a chance to, just to write them down before we get into that. The three things that he does on earth is he indwells every believer. You'll say, well, I thought the Holy Spirit indwelled every believer. He does. So does Jesus. He gives, the, gives us the power to live. You'd say, well, I thought the Holy Spirit gave us the power to live. He does. So does Jesus. And he holds all things together. So we're going to see that as we go through it. Wow, it's some good stuff. So when the next time you sin, just remember, who do you have? You have an advocate who's already done it all, who's already paid for it all. So let's talk about um, what he does on earth. And the first, Did anybody get it written down, those three things? We're going to get them as we go. The first one is he indwells every believer. That's big A. That's John 14, 20. He is inside of us. He, Jesus actually says he's been with you. And the Holy, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come be in you, and I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Uh, he's always there. He indwells believers. Matthew 28 uh, says, I'm with you to the end of the age. Uh, Colossians 1.27, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if you want to write that one down, right besides Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me look at one other place. I want to see it. Here's, here's what he says in Hebrews 13, 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content. For he says, I will never leave you or desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He's right here with you. So as we go through earth, go through this life, day in and day out, he is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. What should we fear? The second thing, he gives us the power to live. That's why in Philippians 4.13, I can do what? All things. I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. And it's really a, a, a great, great truth. He gives us the power. He is the, the strength. When, when you think about a person, I majored in art, and um, we have a body, we have a soul, we have a conscience, we have a flesh, this is an unbeliever. Unbeliever is spiritually dead. The body, the soul relates to the world around. The conscience tells us right from wrong because we have the law. Everybody has the law written in their hearts. People come into this world knowing right from wrong. Now, they, can, they can sear their conscience. They can do wrong enough that it won't bother them. But people know right from wrong. People all know that it's wrong to steal. People all know that it's wrong to cheat. People all know that it's wrong to kill. People know that. They know that. You don't have, every culture you go to, ask them, is, is it wrong to steal from somebody else? And they go, well, yeah, of course it is. Well, where did you come up with that one? Okay? Because the conscience tells us that. The flesh is the natural bent to sin. It's sin within us. It's the old man. It's the flesh. So that's an unbeliever. When we trust in Christ, we're born again. And we, I just always list it as the human spirit. We were dead spiritually. Now we're alive spiritually. We're the new creation in Christ. That's who we are. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And we all say, yeah, that's it. Holy Spirit inside of us. Guess who else comes to live inside of us? Jesus is in there too. And guess who else is in there? The Father. The Father. 
Hey, it's getting a little crowded in here. Yeah, but they're all in there. And that's really true. So as we go through life, we got to realize that the power to live, and, and Paul writes, says, walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But it'll also talk about, it'll talk about the Spirit of Christ and His power. So Galatians 5.13 and that kind of thing. So it's, it's powerful, powerful. The third thing, yeah. That's a great point. Let me, I was, I was going to say something about it, but that, I'm glad you brought it up. No, no, I, I, I was going to skip it, but I'm glad you said it. People take this verse and they'll say, you can do anything in Christ. I say, let me, let me just tell you all this. In Christ, I will never be an NBA player, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much, you know, I'm just not. And, 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 and a lot of people will say, oh, you can do anything. No, no, you can't. You're, you're limited, you're a human being, you've got gifts, talents, and abilities, but to do all things through Christ who strengthens me, if you look at that passage, he's talking about sharing, taking care of people, loving others, ministering, to, ministering. so you can do all kind of ministry and everything through Christ who strengthens you, but that doesn't mean you could be a world-class this, or you can be the smartest person in the world, I mean, it's just not, it's just not the way, he's, that's not what he's talking about, so that's a good point that you brought that up, because I've had people say, there's nothing you can't do. I said, well, yeah, yeah. That is, it's, not, it's not true. You can't. There are certain things you can't do just because you're limited as a human being. And so, so he, he gives us the power to live. And then the third thing, and, and Galatians 5 says, basically 5.13, the same thing. Walk in the Spirit, do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the power aspect. The third thing that he does is he holds all things together. He holds all things together. Our world fits together. You know, I, I, when I had science, when I, when I went to college, I wanted to be a coach. But I went to a school called Delta State, and as you, as whatever you measured in, and in fact, most of the people who went to that college were going to become teachers, coaches, teachers. And, and so you had to have two majors. One, my major was the idea of physical education, but the other had a second teaching field in science. And, and so you had to have all these classes, uh, even though I thought, man, I wish I didn't have to have all this science because I just want to be a coach. But, you know, when you think about a world and you start looking at atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons and all the things, and then they've gotten so small now, I don't even know what they're called now. But people will say, well, something's keeping them all together from, falling, from flying apart. What's keeping them together? Jesus Christ keeps everything together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Have you ever listened to these verses? Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, 16, By him all things were created. We already know from John, it says, In him he created everything, right? We already know from Hebrews he created everything. We saw last week he created everything. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. That means everywhere. Both visible and invisible. What's visible? People, what's invisible? What's invisible? Spirit beings, angels, all those kind of things, they're invisible. It's whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. That means he did it for him. And then he is before all things, which means he's the head of everything. And in him all things hold together. Did you know if he stopped, the whole world would just go to pieces? Everything. He controls it all. He works it all. And so he, this is what he does on the earth. He keeps the earth going. Have you ever thought about how you can pick up your phone and it'll say sunrise, seven, you know, 723. How do they know that? You know, because God has this ordered system. 
It's called cosmos. We get cosmetology from it. You know what cosmetology is? It's where they order the person, their hair, their face. Cosmetology comes from cosmos, the Greek word for the world, the ordered system. We have an ordered system. I mean, you know, everybody's saying, you know, it's fixing to start getting darker and darker. And, you know, the days are going to start getting shorter. Leaves are going to fall off trees. Well, how do we know all that? Because it's an ordered system and it does the same thing all the time. It's a plan. So when we think about his earthly ministry, not only, by the way, just not only is Jesus the creator, but he is the one that holds the creation together. So what does he do? He indwells believers. He'll never leave us. He gives us power to serve and he holds everything together. So that's those, that, those three things. So what we've seen, and, and this is, uh, I want to look at this, what we've seen in the ministry of Christ is his past ministry as the creator and redeemer. That was last week. And we see him in his present ministry, which is in heaven and on earth. Now, before we finish, and we've got a little bit longer to go tonight, I want you to see two things which I think are really powerful. And we'll just get started on one of them. We'll see one, uh, and then we'll get started on the other, and we'll see how it ties together. And, and so the two areas are, as Jesus comes into this world, and what we've been doing, remember, we've been watching all the way back from the nation of Israel into captivity, and then all of it, and then the rise of Rome, and nation coming together, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, all these things, and suddenly here's Jesus, and he's coming into this world, and we're going to see two key things tonight just to talk about. We're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. And let me raise this question. Do people have to be baptized to be saved? No. Why was Jesus baptized? We'll talk about it. And then the second thing is this conflict with the devil and the world and how it all ties together. And we're going to see that, and that will tie over again to next time as well. Let's talk about the first one is the baptism of of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Okay, everybody just turn there. Let's see this. There are two events that happen back to back. Do you know what they are? The baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. They're back to back. In fact, it actually says at the baptism of Jesus, when one of the, one of the Gospels well, Matthew even says, and Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's after the baptism. So let's talk about these two things, the baptism of Jesus and um, the temptation. And we won't get the temptation tonight. We'll just get a little start of it. So if you look uh, back about Matthew uh, chapter 3 and around 13, go back to there. It says, Jesus arrived. And now, I want you to understand, who is John the Baptist? He's the forerunner, remember? We, and Malachi 3.1 talks about the forerunner and the Messiah. Puts them both together. Isaiah 40 talks about the, the runner is coming, the forerunner is coming, the voice crying in the wilderness. So John, think about what he's doing. For the nation of Israel, what's he telling them? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means to change their mind. He's not telling them to believe in the Messiah yet. He's telling them to get their act together because the Messiah is is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and if you remember in the Gospel of John, he's out there and he's telling people and witnessing about the light, the coming one. And so the religious leaders send people out there. They send some, some Levites and some priests and they go out to talk to John the Baptist and they say, are you the Christ? 
And he goes, no, I am not the Christ. And they say, are you Elijah? Because everybody knows that everybody knows that Elijah is supposed to come before the, the great coming of the Messiah. Did John the Baptist look like Elijah? Yeah, Elijah never cut his hair. John the Baptist never cut his hair. They were both Nazarites. And so they looked weird. Right? They just, I mean, they just they were just bushy old people. I mean, that's what they were. And, and people would see them, and they'd say, Those, they're weird. And he ate locusts and wild honey and everything else. And so they came out and said, are you Elijah? And he went, no, I'm not Elijah. And they went, are, are you the prophet? And he went, no. And they said, well, tell us who you are. This is in John chapter 1. And, Jesus, and John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make the way straight for the Lord. He said, the Lord is coming. Now, God somehow told John the Baptist that one day he would be baptizing people, and he, baptizing them is because they're supposed to be believers. They're coming out, and they're identifying with the nation of Israel, and that the Messiah is on the earth, and they're believing in the Messiah. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And John is baptizing them. And he said, now, by the way, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes, loosen them or anything. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That means he's going to bring people together, and he's going to bring judgment. He does both. And so John's telling people that somehow God told John that one day he would be baptizing and he would see a dove come down and light on this person. And when that dove came and stopped on this person, he would know that's the Messiah. Now, he already had an idea. He already had an idea because he had already heard, because remember, they, they were relatives, by the way. John the Baptist and Jesus were relatives. And he had this idea. And so one day he's out there. And Jesus comes, and he looks up, and it's Jesus coming to him to be baptized. And if you remember, John said, whoa, I, I ought to be baptized by you, not you being baptized by me. And Jesus says something, we'll talk about it more in a minute, about fulfilling righteousness and all that. And John, the Gospel of John says that when he baptized Jesus and brought him up, a dove came out of heaven, came down, stayed on Jesus. And John said, that's how I knew for sure he is the Messiah the Christ. So let's look at it from Matthew's view. That's John's view. Let's look at it. Matthew's view says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee, verse 13, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now remember, John's baptizing all kinds of people. People are coming out from all over. Let me tell you, it's kind of a weird thing. John the Baptist, the best that we can tell from the time he was a young man, he just, he just lived in the wilderness. He, he didn't live in a city. He didn't live. His mom and dad, what did his daddy do? He was a priest. And, and so, so he's gone. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden he starts this message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. The Messiah is here. The kingdom is... And, and people just are flocking out there. Because I'll tell you what. They're sick of the religious leaders. And they're sick of the law. And they're sick of the legalism. And they're so tired of saying we can't measure up. Because that's what law does. Law says you can't measure up. And that's the, the purpose of the law is to show you that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Well, they were pretty much tired of the fact that they were sinners and needed a Savior. They're looking for the Savior. And the religious leaders, all they did was put laws and rules on them. And one day, there's this man out in nowhere proclaiming a loud message that the King is here and the Messiah is here. And so people begin to flock out and they're just everywhere. They're coming from everywhere. And so it says, verse 13 of Matthew uh, 3, 
Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? He's saying, I, I don't think so. I think, I think you're kind of the Messiah. You know, you're the best one. In the Gospel of John, he says, there's one coming that I'm not worthy to take off his shoes because even though he comes after me, he was before me, meaning he's always existed. John knew that Jesus always existed. So Jesus said to him, permitted at this time, for this way it is fitting to us to fulfill all righteousness. What? Okay, what is baptism for? Some people say baptism is for salvation. In fact, there's a whole denomination sometimes that teach that baptism is for salvation. We know it's not. Baptism is identification. When you trust Christ as Savior, where are you? Well, you're placed where? In Christ. Well, then, when, you get, when you're baptized, you're not getting saved. You're telling people, you're saying, I've identified with Christ. And so you get baptized by putting you down in water and bringing you up. You died and rose again with Christ to a new life. That's what baptism is for, it's your identification. So what is Jesus? What is Jesus identifying with? Or let me say it another way. Who is Jesus identifying with? Huh? Who do you think? I can't tell what you're saying. No, he's not. He's not identifying with the Father. Is he identifying with himself? What does that mean? This is me. I'm me. <laughs> Who's he identifying with? People. Us. He's identifying with mankind. Why? Mankind's a what? What are they? They're sinners. Right? They need a Savior. Jesus comes to identify with mankind. That's who he is. He's coming to identify. He is the eternal son of God who became what? Became a man. That's, why, that's what his baptism is for, to identify. He says, permitted this time for it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. This is, this is connected me. So just remember, anytime you see baptism, it's always identification. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is it? It's when God places believers, identifies them in Christ. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. There's a baptism of Moses. Did y'all know that? Just read Corinthians. They were baptized with Moses. They were identified with Moses when they came out of Egypt. That's what, that's what that baptism is. Called the baptism of Moses. Okay, so this is the baptism of Jesus. So who is Jesus identifying with? Us. And so it says that then he permitted him. He said, okay, I'll do it. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a what? As a dove. And lighting on him. And, and this voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So look what happened. So he's coming to identify with mankind, and Jesus came to be baptized, fulfilling all righteousness, and we see the Trinity. Okay, so let's think about the Trinity. We, we see that Jesus is in the water, right? And by the way, there's all kind of thoughts. On, some people say that he meant in the water, and John just poured water over his head. Some talk about that they probably dipped him down. Uh, there was a thing called a mikvah that Jewish people could actually, it was like it had, it was like a pool and had steps, and they would walk down in the thing and then come up the other side, and it was called a cleansing. It was called a mikvah. So we're not sure exactly how John did it. Most believe that he probably did it by some kind of immersion, because that's the picture of the death and resurrection. And so you have Jesus, 
He's in the water, right? Then what do you have? Holy Spirit as a what? Okay, so now you have the Holy Spirit and the Son. And then what do you hear? You hear the voice of the Father saying, how do you know? Because here's what it says. And then, behold, the voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved Son. If this is his Son, who is he? He's the Father. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I have people say that Trinity, Trinity's wrong, I, you know, not, not a Trinity. I say, well, it looks like a Trinity to me. Jesus came up and spoke, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and baptize them in the name thereof, in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, that is there. And so what do we see? We see the Trinity and the approval of the Father. So look at this right here. Jesus out of the water. He's the Son. The Holy Spirit is a dove. That's the Spirit. The Father says, well, please. That's at the bottom of page four. If you want to put that in, you don't have to. You may have already written it a different way. And, uh, but I've got, we got just a few more minutes, so I want us to get this last part before we get to next week's lesson about the devil. But think about this. Isn't this amazing? Would you have loved to have been there and seen that? Now, what happened? Look at verse chapter 4. Look, at this. This, is, this is him coming out of the water. Holy Spirit comes down. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. The Spirit. Spirit just came down out of heaven, right? He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be hungry. No. To be what? Tempted by the devil. You could almost see Jesus saying, thanks a lot. Right? Thanks a lot. Because this is what we're seeing. And so this second one is the conflict. Really, the conflict of the devil. And, and you can write down the conflict, the devil and the world. And we can talk more about the world next time. But let's talk about the devil real quickly, okay? Uh, I did a whole study. One, one, one whole semester, we did angels and demons. Ah, it was one of my favorite studies because, I mean, there's, there's more in the Bible than you can imagine about angels and demons. I mean, they're everywhere in the Bible. They're all the way through. They're in every aspect of Jesus' life. Before Jesus ever became a person, he's with the angels. Uh, an angel told Mary she's going to have a baby. An angel told Joseph they're going to have a baby. At the night that the baby was born, what happened? Angels were there. Angels came and said, go to another place. Angels said, come back to another place. They got to another place. I mean, they, and angels telling them stuff all the time. Jesus begins his ministry. What does an angel do? The Holy Spirit tells them to go out there, but you're going to find that the angels are out there, and at the very end, the angels come and take care of him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, and what happens? Angels come and comfort him. And he gets arrested, and what does he say? I could call down 10,000 angels. They're right here. Angels are everywhere. Well, one of the, let's just say it this way, one of the bad angels is Satan. And here's what we realize. The devil doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. You realize that? In, in history, the devil did not want Jesus to go to the cross. Why? What? What? He's going to pay for all sin. Right? Okay? So he doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. And the Jews, as they wanted to make Jesus a king to defeat the Romans. They weren't looking at Jesus as the Savior. 
So you've got these issues. And so let me give you, as we've got the devil there, uh, the A, B, and C. Let's talk about who he is, the devil, who is he. Got three names. And here's the first one. I don't know if I put them all at one time or not. No, here's the first one. First one, A, is he's the slanderer. He's called the devil. You can write the devil. He's a slanderer. That's who he is. He's a liar. The word devil means accuser. Uh, Revelation 12.10, he accuses us. Have you thought about that? Let me ask you something. If Satan said, J.B. is a liar, is he a liar? No. No, he is a liar, but he's not lying right then. Right? He accuses us. Can he accuse you? He could accuse you and say, look what you do. And we could say, yeah, that's right, but I got an advocate. I got a defense attorney. So shut up. That's really what we can say. Okay, so it slander, lies, he accuses us. The devil also, the other name is a tempter. He wants us to do wrong. He appeals to... What's the matter? Did I go to, go wrong? Uh, he, he, there was three spots and you got slander, lies, and accuses. No, no, no. There's A, a B, and a C. Here comes the A. Here comes the B. Here comes the C. So let me go back. There's the A. You can put all that under A. And if you wrote it all wrong, shame on you. But anyway, no. <laughs> Okay, so the devil, and, and that's his A. I'm so sorry. I should have put it differently. And B is he's the temper. He wants us to do wrong. Let me tell you what he does. This is us. And we have a flesh, right? This is where we sin, right? The new creation doesn't sin. You, you understand that, right? The Bible actually says we, the new creation in Christ, we cannot sin. It's just our flesh that sins. So there's a battle. That's why there's a battle going on. And so then here's this world that is evil. And here's Satan who controls the world system. He's called the God of this age. Who let him be the God of this age? God did. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam was the king of the world and he sinned and lost it. So Satan became the king of the world. It's his world. Now Jesus is going to take it back over. And fix it. So the God of this age affects the world, and the world affects our flesh. And that's how he tempts us. He tempts us. Now, if you were to say, the devil's after you, that probably means you're the most important person on the face of the earth. Because he's not like God. He can't be everywhere. He can only be one place at a time. So if you're saying, devil's really after me, what you could say is the devil's really affecting the world, and maybe some of his demons... Maybe some of his other angels are affecting me or trying to affect me. But for him to be after an individual person uh, would be unusual. He goes usually after world leaders and people that can affect other things, that kind of thing. Okay. The third one, you ready? Here's a C, okay? He's, he's Satan, which means the adversary. He's like a roaring lion that he wants to get us. Uh, I, wanna, I know time is up, but I want to tell you two things. His plan, he has a plan for the unbeliever. Never trust Christ. That's his plan. He didn't care if you're religious. He'd, lo he'd love for you to go to church every Sunday and never trust Christ. He'd love for you to go to church and think that you're good enough to go to heaven. He'd love for you to be religious like the religious leaders were. Because you're not looking for the answer. You think you got the answer. So for the unbeliever, he never wants them to trust Christ. For the believer, he never wants us to serve Christ. That's his plan. For believers and unbelievers, that's what he would like to do. So he's that roaring lion 
Now, let me give you, uh, this, this next slide is, is typed wrong. So, on your handout, it says, the devil has always tried to stop God's plan. That's correct. This says, the devil has already tired to stop <laughs> God's plan. And he is not tired. Let me tell you, he's not tired. But let's think about what he's always done. He wanted to stop God's plan. Adam is the ruler of the world. What did he do? He came in there, fooled the woman, and they sinned. He, angels at the time of Noah, the best that we can tell. Now, let me just throw this out. You don't have to write all this down. Because uh, we'll get more stuff later. But uh, angels at the time of Noah, we think the angels were having sexual relations with human beings and corrupting the human race. The third thing is in Egypt, what happened? They decided they would kill all the boy babies. If you kill all the boy babies, all the Jewish boy babies, there's no Messiah. At the time of Esther, when Haman said, I'm going to wipe out every Jew on the face of the earth, there would be no Messiah. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, you remember when we studied him? Okay, book, you know, the, the Antio he was going to kill all the Jewish people, and there would be no Messiah. Herod, at the birth of Jesus, what did he do? He killed all the boy babies two years old and under. Well, Hitler, what did Hitler try to do? He tried to exterminate the Jewish people. The Messiah has already come, but he's tried to exterminate the Jewish people. And the whole issue is always the destruction of Israel. You have nations in our world today that publicly announce their goal is the destruction of Israel. What if a nation said, our goal is the destruction of the United States of America? We'd say, you better not try it. And, and, and there are people who will say, our goal is the destruction of Israel. And everybody just goes like, so no big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal if you lived in Israel. Let me tell you that. It'd be a real big deal. Okay, let me go. Really, I think we better. Uh, so after the baptism, that's when he goes into the wilderness. And he stays in the wilderness for 40 days. We, we, this is not important right now. This is not the most important thing. We'll come back and get some of this last time. I just want you to see 40 as a key word. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. Jonah went for 40 days and told Nineveh and Goliath for 40 days. There's about 12 different 40s in the scripture. All of them show a time of testing. And so you don't have to write all that down. And the plan, Satan's plan, here's the plan, was to get Jesus to sin by going contrary to the Father's will. That's his plan. If he could get Jesus to go contrary to the Father's will. Jesus said, I did not come to do my will, but the will of the Father. That's why he came. So let me give you this, and I hate to have to spend the time to write all this down because we're already over, but here's some key aspects if you want to write them down real quickly. Um, Jesus serves, serves now us now both in heaven and on earth. We already talked about that. We saw the baptism of Jesus by John. Um, the conflict of Jesus with the devil, and the devil's goal was for Jesus to go contrary. You don't really have to write those down because you've already got them, okay? So let's do this. Let me give you just the applications real quick, and you can just write those in. Realize that Christ is the head of the church. That's one of our things. He's the head of the church, the head of the body. That's us. And so he's our authority, and he's our head. And so it's pretty exciting when you think about it that way. He's the authority. He gives us the gifts, empowers us. We're under his authority. Okay, have you got that? Okay, the second one is, and it's all right there, let's be thankful Jesus is preparing a place for us and we'll be with him forever. Think about that. He's preparing a place for us and we will be with him forever. Now, can you imagine that when you die, the first face you'll see is who? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, this, this is what's amazing. What's amazing. And here's the third one. Let's go to Christ in prayer. 
making our petition, our intercession, our confessions. Why? Because He's there. He's the advocate. He's the intercessor. He is all those things. He takes care of us. And that's why Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God.